open your Bibles. We are going to be back in chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. I'm going to read the passage as we normally do. I'm going to pray one more time after that because this is a, a pretty interesting and, let me put it this way, challenging passage this morning. And so I'm going to read the uh, first 11 verses, well, the next 11 verses, uh, chapter 9, 46 to 56. If you have your Bibles, printed version, awesome. iPhone, tablet, that's acceptable. Read along with me, beginning in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, or to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, once again we come to you this morning thankful that we get to uh, sit under your word. Your word read, your word preached, your word heard. Father, I just pray today, Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would speak to us. We thank you for this record that Luke has orderly accounted for and for these stories that follow one after the other in the life of Jesus and in the life of the apostles and disciples. We pray today that we would learn greatly from it about who you are, God, about what you have done, about who that means we are, and how then we should live. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So listen, <clears throat> here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to dive right into the deep end. <laughs> okay, deep end. What is it that separates us from God? <laughs> it's a three-letter word. One syllable, right. Sin. That's a simple answer, right? It, it really is a simple answer. That is what separates everyone from God, although in Christ, obviously, we are no longer separated from God because our sins have been forgiven. So the questions then that come out of that are pretty simple because that's the right answer. That's the real answer. That's what separates every human being on the planet from God. But then the question must be, well, okay, I mean, I think most people would be, okay, well, define sin for me, right? right. Oh, or give me a list. You know, tell me what the rules and the regs are, you know, and, and I'll see what I can do about it. And then I think there's also going to be the question, okay, you know, like one of the uh, rabbis, one of the actual scribes once said to Jesus, tell me, what, what is the greatest commandment of all? But maybe some people would say, okay, what is the greatest sin of all? You know, like, like tell me what, what the, if there's one thing that's the greatest sin of all, like if, I, if, I, if I'm good on that, then God will accept and approve me, right? And, and all my sins might be forgiven based on what I do, which is not the gospel. But anyway, people might have that question. And so that's a good question, I think. I think it's a good question to ask, is there one overarching 
sin? And those are good questions. They, they are rather straightforward, I think, some of the questions that we have about sin and the answers. There are lists in the Bible, by the way. We're not going to get into them today. That would be painful. But there are lots of lists in the Bible. If you want to know what they are afterwards, I can point you to them. But there are a lot of lists in the Bible. There's at least five or six good lists of what God considers to be sins of human beings, the things that separate us from him. There are lists that could be given. They're, they're rather straightforward, actually. In plain language, in simple language, they're easy to understand. I mean, any person can read the Bible. That's what actually, unfortunately, often turns people off as they read the Bible and go, oh, there's my sin. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's plain language. It's there. In its plain language, it's there. But we still have questions. So in general terms, the, I guess the question is that I want to dig into a bit this morning in introduction is, is there one overarching sin that you know, kind of encompasses them all? Well, the answer is yes. There, there, there is a sin. And we saw it in, in the life of the disciples last week. It is the sin of unbelief. That is the greatest sin of all. That, that actually encompasses them all. All fall underneath unbelief. And, and, and you can look at all the sins in all the lists and you go, yeah, that, that, that means I don't believe this about who God is and what he has done and, and who am I. It's the sin of unbelief. Essentially, the not denial of God's word we saw was the, the, the sin of unbelief in the disciples last week, right? The disciples did not believe Jesus in the flesh, the word of God in the flesh, when he told them, I have given you power and authority. Go and cast out demons, heal people, preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. They failed to believe him just a few weeks later when a man brought his son who had a demon to them and they could not cast that demon out. And so they were guilty of the sin of unbelief. Essentially, it's the denial of God's word is what it boils down to. And what God himself says about, listen, who he is, what sin in fact is, what that tells us then about who we are, and out of that, how then we should live under God. And I've said this before, and I just want to make sure we understand this. It's not that God is looking at sin and going, oh, I, I can't wait to punish you. <laughs> that, no, that, that's not it at all. The reality is sin is what it's not only separates us from God, but it, it, it eliminates the possibility for you and I as human beings to flourish in the way that God intended for us. So he wants us to be healed of that. So in fact, that we can flourish. And so it's interesting. It's interesting. In the case of the apostles, we learned, as I've said last week, a couple of things. They even had the advantage of, of hearing directly from Jesus the truth about, number one, I've given you this power. It's not for 72 hours. I've given it to you. Go and, and make disciples do these things, bless them, heal them. And they failed to believe that. But they, they also failed to understand what Jesus was saying. Because a couple of times Jesus to has told them now, I'm going to die on the cross in your place and for your sins, but I'm going to rise on the third day. Even that, they, they didn't understand, but even that, they didn't believe. They were suffering from unbelief. So this brings us back to Luke's purpose for writing his gospel. And we've seen it before that he's writing this orderly account. I was saying to someone as they came in this morning, I, I, I'm, every week I'm amazed when I look at the next passage and I go, this is incredible. It's not just Luke, Luke's not a, a genius. 
And he was a smart man. He was a physician, a doctor, a historian. It's the Holy Spirit of God that lines up these passages one after the other, and, and one builds on the next, all pointing to who God is and what he has done, all pointing to the things that we need to know in order to be forgiven of our sins and flourish as human beings. And so we know that it, it, it's, it's interesting, but we've seen it throughout history, from Adam and Eve through the people of Israel to the apostles in the days of Jesus and to you and I today, there's still this struggle, the struggle with unbelief. And it boils down to the thing that Luke wanted his dear friend Theophilus to have more than anything else. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants you and I to have, and that is certainty, absolute certainty. So on that note, I, I want to show you something that follows on from what we looked at last week related to that. Maybe it's something you didn't realize. And that is this. As I suggested last week, there's this ongoing movement in our world today. It's been going on for centuries, but really the last 40 to 50 years, it's, it's really moving forward where there's, there's a lot of questioning of the Word of God, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, because, of course, he's not Jesus, right, is what some would say. But there's this ongoing questioning of the Word of God. Uh, and it's all an attempt to square, I would suggest to you, what the Bible in its plainest language possible says about certain things with people in our culture, people in the world, people who do not believe in Jesus, do not follow God, have not been forgiven their sins. One thing, uh, the things that you will hear often is that, as I said last week, the problem in some people's mind is, is the certainty that some people in the Christian church have. You know, these closed-handed things that they grasp onto very tightly, right? And, and that's apparently the problem, is, is that because they're doing that, it's not allowing us the freedom to be able to discover what God's word really is saying. Because maybe it's saying something different than what we think in its plain language in the text. And so I want to suggest this to you today. Um, Luke's goal is certainty. That's his goal. The Apostle's Paul goal was that you may know and have certainty. My goal as a pastor is not to get up here on Sunday morning and go, you know, there are three or four different views of this particular text, and I don't want to tell you which one you should believe or you should be certain of. I just want to let you know what all the possibilities are, and you decide for yourself. If I ever start doing that, you should fire me, okay? It's not the job of the preacher. It's certainly not the job of a pastor elder in a local church. Now, I know when I say that, there are some people who are like, that bristles, right? That's like, what? What? I'm supposed to have certainty about everything the Bible says? Well, maybe not at first, but maybe we need to be like the man whose son was, was healed by Jesus in the previous passage, where at one point he says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Maybe approach it this way. I am certain. Help me with my uncertainty. I want to suggest to you that's a good place to start. So let me put it to you this way. I think this is what people are missing sometimes. Everyone's goal is certainty. Are you really certain about climate change? Are you really certain about those you vote for, whether it's this party or that party, that this would be better than this? Everyone's goal is certainty. Now, some of you might go, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do you say that? Why can you say that? Well, let me put it this way. It, it usually comes out looking this way. Most of us have certainty A, and the only reason why we move from certainty A is because there's been a proposition that certainty B might be better. 
DBA because there is a certain DB that we want to discover. And maybe that's better. I want to give you an illustration of how this can work in the church. Many years ago, there was a gentleman who came to the Rock Church, um, came for about a year and a half, um, um, came to our membership class, and in our membership class, we talk about doctrine. We talk about the certain things that the, the Rock Church believes in and believes to be true, and, and we just lay them all out. You want, might want to come to membership class, and after that, you may not come back, because that caused a struggle in this gentleman. And the struggle was, well, there were two or three things that, you know, um, they weren't a deal breaker per se, but he was not certain that we were right about those things. He ended up leaving the Rock Church and going somewhere else and um, told me that, you know, I'm just on a journey to discover these things because I'm not sure that that's right. I feel it might be this way. And I was like, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but God bless you. I hope it works out. Met him a few year years later, actually, on the street here. We had a conversation. And it's interesting, the things, the two things that were particularly about the Rock Church that we were certain about, about the way we gather and our doctrine and stuff like, ended up not being the reasons that we were having this conversation. He, he had gotten that settled, but then we got onto the whole idea of creation, evolution, Genesis chapter 1, and Adam and Eve. And he revealed to me that he no longer believed that there really was an Adam and Eve. Now, friends, I don't have time this morning to get into that theologically with you, but that is a deal breaker. There's a gospel issue there. Now, here's the interesting thing. I remember looking at that gentleman and going, are you certain? He goes, absolutely. So as we look at today's text, here's what I want you to see. That's what this is all about. Luke has been wanting his good friend to have certainty in the word of God. He wants you, the Holy Spirit wants you and me to have certainty in the word of God. And here's the deal. What we're going to see today is an amazing follow-on from unbelief, uncertainty, to what I, I'm going to suggest to you today is the seed behind, you're going to love this, the seed behind all unbelief. You'll never guess what it is. It's human pride. It's human pride. Your pride, my pride, is the seed of unbelief. Today we see the response of the apostles to being called out by Jesus for their unbelief, and we, th we see three responses that are all about pride. Here's your sermon title and outline for today, and we're going to dive in. The antidote to pride. Anybody want to be cured of their pride? I'm, we're going to give it to you today. So, so we're going to see two things, actually three, I guess, in the first two. But the first is the pride of self-ambition. Secondly, the pride of party, right? The pride of party and, yes, power. That kind of sounds like politics, doesn't it? Could be, but it's not in this text. And then lastly, the antidote. So let's look at it. Number one, the pride of self-ambition. One verse, simple verse. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Okay, I mean, full stop here. <laughs> like, um, let, just put yourself into the day. You remember the last few weeks, if, you were, if you're here, if you're not, I'll give you a, a really quick recap of what's been going on. But these men in, in chapter 1, verse 1, are told by Jesus to go, right? I, I'm empowering you with the power of the Holy Spirit and, and the authority to go out and cast out demons, right? And, and proclaim the kingdom of God, to preach boldly, to heal everybody, that comes to you, and they go, and they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly successful. 
He gives them the same power, by the way, that he had as a human, as a man, but also as God, the power that he had to do these things when he walked this earth. He gives that power to them. And they go and they accomplish all these amazing, amazing things. They went and they come back, we read, and with incredible success stories. Like they're spending all this time, like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe how amazing this was. And Jesus goes, that's great. I need to feed 5,000 people. Let's go. I mean, the, the stories just keep rolling one after the other as what happens with these guys. And then we saw that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto this mountain, and, and then Elijah, who was dead but is now alive, and Moses, who was dead and is still alive, and, and they're there on the mountaintop with Jesus, and then Jesus' body is transformed into his glorified body. They see this, and Peter's like, he's freaking out. He's like, this is amazing. What an incredible experience. I'll tell you what, God, Jesus, this would be great if this could continue for a while. So let me build three tents, and we could all stay here, and, and this amazing, this, right? Well, Jesus is like, mm, yeah, Peter, that's great, but you're not getting it, right? No, I need to go back down into the valley. The reason why I came, which is where broken people live and where pain and suffering exists, I need to go back down there. This mountaintop experience, I wanted to show it to you. This is, this is what's coming. And you may have a few glimpses of that in your life today, but that's not the norm. The norm is brokenness, suffering, and pain. And I'm here to heal people of that. And so they go back down the mountain. And when they come back down the mountain, uh, they, they find the nine apostles who, who are left in the valley, but they're unable to, hear this, they're unable to cast out the demon. They, they can't cast out the demon that this boy has, the, man, the father brings to them, and, and it's it quite a ruckus, to, you know, like arises over that. And, and Jesus rebukes them publicly in front of all the people that are there. A crowd is, like, it could be thousands of people. And this father and his son, and everybody's there. And Jesus rebukes them, and he says, O faithless, or unbelieving, and twisted generation, how long must I be with you? Must I labor with you? It's quite a rebuke. And so from that event, we learned that they suffered from unbelief toward the word of God that was revealed directly to them from the word made flesh. That should be encouraging to you and I, right? When we question things, when we're uncertain, and even when we're unbelieving. This is, these are the apostles. Now, 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 let's be clear. They would get over their unbelief and their uncertainty, and these, these, most of these men would go to their death defending the word of God. But that's what we're seeing at this point. Then all of a sudden we read, they're having an argument. <laughs> no kidding. They're, they're having an argument. All of these things have transpired. Jesus has rebuked them publicly and they're fighting with each other, right? It's really strange. There's so many things to imagine about what's exactly going on. Again, I don't like to impose on the text, but we, we, we can, we're going to dream a little bit here. We're just kind of imagining what's going on, right? The words in the Greek that are used to translate uh, argument arose indicates an ongoing, escalating fight, debate. Like, this was going on. In other words, there had been some simmering competition going on between these guys, not just over the last few days, but maybe over the last 18 months as they've been following Jesus. You know, I'm better than you. Which one's, you know, Jesus loves me more than he loves you. Like, there's things going on, right? So you can just imagine. I, I thought of a couple of things of what might, might have been going on. I mean, first of all, you might have Peter 
uh, James and John coming down from the mountaintop experience. They were the favored boys brought up to the top of the mountain with Jesus and them coming down and looking at the other nine guys and going, boys, you couldn't cast out a little demon? You know, maybe if we were here, right, that, that could have happened. And at the same time, I can hear one of the other disciples looking at Peter and going, Peter, Peter, <laughs> you know, t time out. Check yourself here, buddy. The only reason why Jesus took you to the top of the mountain is because he wanted to keep trouble close to him. <laughs> right? right? And then maybe one of the other guys is going, hey, 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 guys, remember when we came back from that missions trip? Remember, remember we did a tally of who cast out the most demons? I won. Competitive spirit, don't you think? They were arguing amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. That's interesting. So whatever, listen, whatever the volleys might have been that were going back and forth during this ongoing argument that arose amongst them, one thing became clear. One thing became very clear. There was the simmering unrest amongst them. And it came out in an overheated debate. And what was really revealed? Pride. Pride. Self-ambition. It's Jesus. Who cares who's second? <laughs> they did. They very much did. Each one of them was beginning to wonder just who, which one of them was closest to Jesus that he loved more, would be next to him in his kingdom, sitting at his right or his left, and in charge of whatever. Which one is it going to be? Me or him? <laughs> or them? You can, just, you can almost see what's going on. This is division, isn't it? Th there's no division at the Rock Church, is there? Has there ever been any division in any church that you've been part of? No, come on. Right? It's right here. Right at the very beginning, the seeds are there. I remember very well when I was a young boy. I'm going to age myself here. I was nine years of age. I was watching a boxing match on television with my dad. My dad was a boxer, actually, growing up in Toronto. He was reasonably successful. He's a tough guy. <laughs> I looked up to him for those reasons. And I'm um, watching this. He was, his favorite boxer was fighting this new upstart guy by the name of Cassius Clay. Anybody remember that guy? Right? He ended up becoming Muhammad Ali, right? And I'm watching the fight, and, and, and shockers of shockers, Muhammad Ali, I mean, Cassius Clay knocks the guy out, you know, and beats him. And then, then what was really amazing is my dad's like, Whoa. but worse, the cameras come in the, in the ring and the, somebody thrusts a mic in front of 22-year-old Cassius Clay and he's like, I am the greatest. Look at me, I'm pretty. Like a butterfly, sting like a bee. You know, like all of his lines. He was like over the top. He just wouldn't stop, right? And Howard goes, sell. He's there and he's got the mic and he's like, he's loving this because this is TV, man. This is, this is, this is amazing. Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. Like, this is mid-60s. I'm dating myself, okay? But I remember watching this, and I'm like, this guy's amazing. My dad's going, he's an idiot. Dad didn't like it at all, you know. He's such a blowhard, right? You know what? Muhammad Ali, when I look back at that, he, he became a voice for a generation. He became a voice for a generation that really began to focus on themselves. Right? I was raised in that generation. And I gotta tell you something about that generation. We were the original rebels, guys. We rebelled against everything. We certainly rebelled against our parents about you know, family and life and 
their views of sex, for sure, okay? And we rebelled against everything, against teachers, government, the law. We called them the man, you know? You know, we, we, we rebelled. It was all about, you know, drop out and turn on. And we did. But over the years, what I also saw, because I began my, quote, marketing career, business career, I also saw a, a progression of books coming out. It was unbelievable the amount of books that were coming out that were all pushing all of us in the culture to become the greatest. Self-ambition. I've read most of them in my business days. Let me give you a few of those books, just some of the names of those books. It's amazing. The, the, the first one that I remember reading was called The Power of Positive Thinking. Norman Vincent Peale. Amazing book, kind of, kind of. Another one would be How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's by Dale Carnegie. I, I, could, I could paraphrase that book for you. It's not just about winning friends and influencing people. It's about getting ahead of them and taking advantage of them so that I can get to the top. It's the logic behind the book. That sounds kind of mean, but really it's the, the logic behind most of those books. Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Probably uh, there were two other. Wayne Dyer, was, he wrote something like 29 books. Um, the other guy that's pretty popular, and some of you heard me mention his name before, Anthony Robbins, he wrote the book, um, Awaken the Giant Within. You know, the power is in you, right? The power for you to become the greatest is in you. Read my book. Read my book. Come to my conferences, my seminars. Get pumped up. I saw this. This has been the past 40, 50, 60 years. It has. And so the word, let me put it this way, there's a word that's become popular. It's not a very nice word, but it's become popular more and more through these generations, and it's the word narcissism. I'm not a narcissist. Are you? No. Are you overtaken by self-ambition? Are you overtaken by pride? Well, I should be in that position, not him, her. Shoot, I feel that way sometimes when I'm in a coffee shop and there's somebody in front of me, ahead of me, and I need to get my coffee and get going, and they're talking to the person who makes the coffee too long. <laughs> or in traffic. <laughs> it goes on. So I want you to remember earlier, or I'd suggest this to you, what is that all about? Well, it, it, it's the seed of pride, isn't it? It began in the garden, guys. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. You too can be God. You too can be the greatest. It's the lie that has been going on forever. And it's just getting amped up today in our culture. It truly is. So I want you to remember earlier when Jesus accused them of being faithless uh, and twisted. Uh, the word literally means crooked. Or, or turned around. I, I think of a corkscrew, you know, for a wine bottle or whatever. It's just it's the same pattern. It keeps, and it's just twisted and turned around and doesn't have the benefit, actually, of opening up a wonderful bottle of Merlot, but that's what it's about. In other words, when we suffer from unbelief, which, listen, it is birthed in the seed of pride, we're simply following the pattern of this world, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, which is a result of the fall and the pattern that has been going on throughout all of history. And so really, the, at the end of the day is, um, what God's word is trying to encourage us about is that um, The Secret to Human Flourishing, that's an interesting book called The Secret. Please don't read it. If you have, repent. It's a horrible book. 
just encapsulates everything about what I've just been saying. But the idea is really, people are given to this because they want to seek greatness because they want to seek self-ambition. And then God's word comes around, Jesus comes along and says, <laughs> you're twisted. And I'm not trying to be mean to you, but you're twisted and it's hurting you. It's not helpful to you. I mean, he does say that because look, here's his response. He says this, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for look. He who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. It's upside down, isn't it? It, it? It's the complete opposite of what I was raised to believe. It's the complete opposite of my business life, what I preached as a motivational speaker. It's the opposite. The apostles are sitting there going, huh? <laughs> Jesus is being very clear, isn't he? This is, this is the pride of self-ambition. And Jesus is saying, guys, no. You, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Look at me. Did I come on clouds in power and announce myself and make sure that everybody sees that I am the greatest? No, I came humbly, humbly, walked softly. That's how I've come to you. So, what we see here in Christ is interesting. He knows. He knows. We've been over this before. He knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. God knows yours right now, this minute, yesterday, when you did that or said that. Mine too. He knows. He knows exactly what they're thinking. The wickedness of their hearts, yours and mine, and yet, do you notice how he responds? <laughs> Lord, fire. No. <laughs> no. No. Jesus responds with what? With love. Jesus responds with grace. So what are they arguing about? Well, being the greatest. Being next in line to Jesus. Being favored is what they're arguing about. In their culture, they all knew two things. They all knew two things was really important, what we should learn from this, this comment of Jesus. The first thing that they knew is that, that the place of honor in, in any gathering was next to the most important person in the room. So you were invited for dinner to someone's house who was the owner, a Pharisee, a leader in the community. If, if they asked you to sit right here next to the president, you were the most important person in the room now next to them. So they all knew that. The other thing that they knew in that culture in that day to that in that day was that children were not important at all. <laughs> now some of you in the room are going, amen to that. <laughs> no, that's, we don't feel that way at all today, do we? In, in fact, it's possible that maybe we've gone too far the other way with our children. None of you. I know you. You're all wonderful parents. But we can't idolize them and turn them into more than they, that we should. 
And so let me put it this way. Let's be careful for a second. I think we need to be very careful and not, again, throw these guys under the bus and you know, look at them in a terrible way. Um, maybe we don't have that view of children today in our world or you don't have that view of your children, good for you. But, but let's pick a number of any, any people in any category that, that we either feel like, wait a second, <laughs> there is no way that they're better than me. Or, or listen, there's no way that they deserve that job, that promotion over me. Anybody? Am I the only person struggling with these problems? That's what Jesus is getting at here. That's what he's getting at. So what does Jesus do in this situation? Again, for a recap, he does this. He's got to be frustrated with them. He's already called them faithless and twisted, right? He's told them that. And then look at what we see here. He turns everything right side up. He turns everything around to the way that it should be so that you will flourish. And it isn't by you thinking you're the greatest or you're the best or you need to seek that. No, it's the opposite of that. He calls a child to sit in the place of privilege. And the next greatest place in the room. And then, really, what he says is a bit of a mic drop, I think, to the guys listening. When he says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. Now, look, Christian, you and I know this is true, right? So what is it really getting at? What is he getting at? Go low. Think less of yourself. Or think of yourself less often, as Tim Keller likes to say. Go low. Serve others. Bless others. Don't sit in the most important place in the room. Give it to someone else. Step aside. Now, that's interesting. Number two the power of party and power together. <laughs> the guys are there. They're hearing this from Jesus. A little child is sitting beside Jesus, right next to him. Place of privilege. I've just given you a key for life. Go low. Serve. <laughs> and then we read, John answered him and said this, Master, hey, listen, we saw someone who, who was casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, um, but we couldn't because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you, important words, is for you. So I don't know about you, but it appears to me that John's not listening. <laughs> you know, like this just whoop, right over my head or like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Obviously, Jesus, you were talking to Peter here, not to me, but it, it just it flies right by. And, and so... I also want to suggest this to you about this, this particular section, this bit about party, is that this, this is a great counterbalance, really. It's a really great counterbalance, this teaching here, between um, certainty, theologically, doctrinally, biblically, and humility. Being humble, which is what I think we really, really need to do and be. But I've got to also say this to you. And I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. It's hard to be humble when you're right, isn't it? I mean, most of us, we want to appear humble when we're right, but it's hard to do that, isn't it? When you're, when you're absolutely certain, absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're right on something, is it not hard to be humble? 
Okay, again, I think I'm the only one with the t-shirt here, but it is hard to be humble when you're right. Uh, you all know this about me, <clears throat> and if you don't, you will. Learn it if you stick around. Uh, I, I, I love the Bible. I love theology. I love sound doctrine. I really, really do. And so I, I'm being specifically and clearly honest with you that it's hard sometimes because there's a fine line between being authoritarian, domineering, aggressive, and being humble. Again, I've got to be honest with you, as I look at this, pastors and people in ministry leadership are the ones who struggle the most with this. I go to conferences, I go to these things, multiply, come and, and sit around and have a coffee with me and some of the guys and we'll be talking with each other. And, and the competitive spirit that's in that room that's going on between the pastors about, hey, so how's it going with you? And hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think of that? Oh, yeah, he's not. Him. It's unbelievable how competitive pastors and ministry people can be. And the pride factor's there. Right? The pride factor tends to show itself up. So that's the way I've been. It's been like 40 plus years that I've made basically two things my, my, my go-to as far as my study that I love and I'm passionate about. One is sound doctrine and theology, and the other is ecclesia, the church, the governance of the church, how that's supposed to look, how it's supposed to work. 40 years. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm there. I'm not saying I'm there. Overall, it's been a good thing, but this I also know is true. There's that fine line. There's that fine line between being right and knowing with certainty and being heavy-handed, authoritarian, and prideful. Just confessing. It's a fine line that I have to meander myself through to get at. So basically what we see with our buddy John here is he's basically saying, Jesus, look, here's the thing. We ran into this guy who was casting out demons in your name. So apparently the guy was successful, right? He was actually doing it, what they couldn't do just before. And so he's doing this. And, and we, rep we repeatedly tried to stop him, but we couldn't. And, and so, hey, Jesus, now, now that I've said that, don't you think that I deserve to be on your right hand? Because, like, I, I've obviously stepped up and, you know, I, I, like, we were doing this. Jesus' response is interesting, but the truth is, is that basically, what are they getting at? They're basically getting at the fact that, well, you know what, he, he's not with us. He's not part of us. He's not part of our denomination. You know, he's from that denomination. You know, like, we don't even know what denomination he's from, but it's obviously not ours. This happens in the church, in this church, in every church. I was at a conference a number of years ago. A very popular, uh, at that time, speaker was there. I won't mention his name, but it was like two, 3,000 people. It was Missions Fest, actually, in Vancouver. Two, 3,000 people. They're Christians, but a lot of pastors and, and uh, ministry leaders were there. And, and he started off, and he knew that in the room, there were a bunch of different denominations represented. And, and, and so, he, you know, he just wanted to, you know, get everybody together and on the same page because he knew there were some people going to be good. He, they knew that he was Baptist, right? And so there's a bunch of other denominations there, and they go, okay, so we're going to listen to this guy, but... You know, when he gets into this, we're going to go, oh, hey, whatever. And, and so he opens up and he goes, hey, listen, I just want you to know one thing just between all of us in this room here. Listen, you do not, I believe this to be true, okay? I just want you to relax, but I believe this to be true. You do not need to be a Baptist to get into heaven. But it doesn't hurt. 
It was funny. I thought it was funny. Some people didn't laugh, though. It's true. What do you say? It's dropping on me here. Um, so finally, there's, there's one prideful response that we see in our text here today. And I need to give you a little bit of um, background to it. Jesus sends out some disciples into the land of the Samaritans, right? And, and he wants them to prepare a, a meal and a, a get, get together so he can come and preach the kingdom of God to them too, right? And, and so the guys do go to set it up. But the Samaritans say, no, no, we don't want to receive him. We don't want to have him. And it's because apparently Jesus has said that he set his face towards Jerusalem and so that's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of history here. We don't have time to get into it, but basically to say this, the Jewish people were divided. This happened in the Old Testament, and, and it happened that the, the people who were in the north, which were the Samaritans, they believed that the best place to worship God, Yahweh, was in the north, and in their area, in their temple, synagogues, uh, not Jerusalem, right? And so there was this division that already existed there, and, and so it, it, it's a divisive story. It's played, and it includes politics and theology, which, again, is a terrible mix, and, 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 and it's, well, even to this day, that's taking place in the culture of that day with the apostles. They go there, and then the apostles respond to this. It's interesting, again, and Jesus is there, and Jesus hears their response, and it says this, and when his disciples, look at this, James and John, Two of them. The, these, these are the sons of thunder, by the way. <laughs> they come to Jesus, and they said, Listen, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus rebuked them, and they went on their way to the next village. So James and John are clearly feeling that, look, these, guys, these people have dished Jesus and us, and so, you know, th there should be some retribution here. And, and they think this is a good thing. Actually, in the Old Testament, there's a story about Elijah calling down fire, right, on the Samaritans. But it was because they were, in that particular story, uh, worshiping false gods. Not because where they were worshiping, but they were worshiping false gods. And so they actually probably think they're being biblical. Right? And, and Jesus, again, shouldn't you be proud of us? Now listen, these are the same two dudes who on another occasion, when they're all talking again about who is the greatest, this happens three times, three times before the cross. These guys are all talking about, you know, who is the greatest. These are the same two dudes, the sons of thunder, who have mummy go to Jesus and plead their case to be on his right and left hand. Unbelievable. James and John, amazing men, though, as it turns out. So there's this crazy division here, and they, and, and, and they, they think they're right, and Jesus' response... Let me paraphrase it for all of us here. It's basically this. Boys, guys, you don't get it. You're not getting it. That is not why I have come. It is not why I have come. They not only didn't understand, listen, at this point, God's word, they had unbelief towards God's word. They not only didn't understand the resurrection and what that meant and why it was necessary, but also now they, they didn't understand the mission. Number three, in conclusion, the antidote. Are you ready? I am. The antidote's awesome. The antidote to pride. So again, just to recap, we, we have these unbelieving disciples. Um, they, they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the resurrection. They don't understand the plan. They don't understand the mission. They're, they're completely lost at this point in time. And, and we see these prideful responses to their lack of faith and what they're thinking. 
So, so what do you think the antidote is? What do you think? I mean, if, if the problem is a one-word problem and the problem is a one-word problem, it's called pride, what possibly could be the antidote? One word could be humility. Right? Be humble. There's a problem with that. I don't know if you thought about it, but see, our human nature is prideful. It's natural for us to go to that. If we're born anyway, we're born that way. Our inclination is to pride. It's not natural for you and I to be humble. That's not natural. It's natural for Jesus. It's natural for Christ. And so that is obviously necessary for us to see. And then I would suggest to you, therefore, the antidote is this. The goal is humility. The antidote is the gospel. It's the gospel. And we've seen the gospel in this text that we've read today. I want to highlight it for you. It's from verse 51. It's from verse 51. It says this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up. Taken up? To heaven? Well, first, on the cross. Those are the days that are coming near. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem to the cross. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. We've read that Jesus knew their hearts. Guys, think about it this way. Jesus knew their very hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew they were full of pride. Even at that moment, at that time, he said, you know what? I'm going to go die for them. I'm going to go die for them. I read one commentator. I love what he had to say. It was amazing in the way that he unpacked this. He goes, you know what's amazing about the gospel? What's amazing about Jesus in this story here? It's, it's not at the point where they go out on a, a missionary journey and they come back and they're super successful and they've done everything Jesus told them to do and, and they've cast out the demons and they've been faithful and, and they've done everything. It's not at that point that Jesus says, oh, I'm ready to die for these great guys. It's at their lowest point that Jesus decides to go to the cross. Are you encouraged at all? <laughs> I'm encouraged because I've been pretty low in my life. Have you ever committed any sins before Christ or even after Christ where you're like, okay, I just blew it? Maybe that one's not forgivable? Or... <laughs> Maybe I've now become unforgivable because I've continued in my sin. The lowest point. This is the gospel. This is the antidote to pride. It's the gospel. And it's the gospel that will make you and I humble. I want to close with this. Uh, two verses actually I want to give to you. And they're both from the mouth of Jesus. He speaks in John 3, you all know 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But verse 17 is really key, and people forget about that verse. In verse 17 it says, Jesus speaking, for God did not send his son, did not send me, into the world to condemn the world, 
in order that the world might be saved through me. So you know, the gospel is, these guys wanted to call down fire and brimstone on the Samaritans, right? And Jesus said, guys, that's not the plan. The plan is, is that God's fire is going to come down on me. On the cross, in your place, and for your sins. I'm going to bear it. All of it. That's the gospel. That's incredibly good news. Amen? That's incredibly good news. Finally, Jesus said this in John 15. I love these words. This is my commandment. This is one commandment. This is my commandment for you, Christian. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's great love, isn't it? He's speaking about what he's going to go do. So let me encourage you this week. I want you to think about this verse this week. And as you're going about your work, your play, whatever it might be, your interactions with everyone that you know and you love, and selfish ambition starts to bubble up in you, at any given time, remember this, word, this verse and just say to yourself, I'm going to die to my own selfish ambition for the sake of this person, this situation, this circumstance, right now. Pray with me, would you?